Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the HIV podcast. Each week, we focus on a person, historical event, or pop culture moment linked to HIV and explore the story of what actually happened. I'm Sarah. And I'm Jess. And between us, we've been working in the field of HIV for 40 years. Our aim is to get as many people as possible HIV educated. Welcome to the HIV podcast, Sarah. Good morning. Oh, it's not morning. It's afternoon. I know, do you know what? It's because we normally record in the morning. We also normally record on a Monday, and today is a Thursday. We are going right to the wire. We've had quite the week. Do you know what? Soon we'll just be doing live episodes on a Friday morning. (laughs) Can you imagine? What a car crash that would be. We should do that. I don't think I can trust myself. The stupidest things come out of my mouth. Yeah, no, let's not. Not for us. Right, do I have today? Toast pole? Yes. Oh, no, I remember this. It was warm buttery toast or brittle frozen toast uh no deliciously chilled toast i think we're going to call it who do you think won in the poll because i know you haven't seen this well i would hope warm buttery toast warm buttery toast did win so the percentages of who was team sarah with your warm buttery toast 56 percent. team jeff 44 percent. but i have to admit that i voted for myself twice so oh my Gosh. Now, I'm going to let you off that because I am sure that two votes, I don't know how many you got in total, but I imagine it would be quite a lot. So two little votes isn't too bad, but I am shocked at how many people like cold toast. So I went to look into this because I knew this would be your attitude on it, if I'm honest, Sarah. I know you too well. So I thought I'm going to have a little look around. Apparently in Europe, bit of a delicacy for our favourite, Sarah, The Guardian, there's a whole article that says this month, How to eat is tackling a quintessentially British snack, toast. Sounds simple, right? But how wrong you are. Do you use a toaster or a grill? White sliced or rye? Sourdough or seeded multigrain? And that's just the start of it. And I thought, no, no, we can't go into this any further. Toastgate is over. Warm and puddly butter one. It's over. A grill for your toast? Only if you're having cheese on toast, right? Oh, yeah. You can't beat that. That That is a good snack. We should have that at work one day. Would you have like Tabasco or Worcester sauce on it? Oh, 
What's the sauce? Can't go wrong. I'm actually in agreement for once. Delicious. Delicious. But thank you so much, everyone, that got involved with that. We we just never expected. I mean, obviously, the reason we did the vote was because we'd had so many messages around the different ways people like their toast. So now we know. Well, we always expected that I would lose that. But I was quite ashamed that I voted for myself. But I couldn't help it. Not going to lie. I couldn't help it. So I'm the winner. Well, toast is the real winner, Sarah. (laughs) I'm also the winner, surely. (laughs) I also have a big old thank you to do this week. Um, And it's to the HIV Matters podcast. I've listened to their podcast. Very good. Yeah, it's a really, really great podcast. And their their main host is Dr. Michelle Croston. She's worked in HIV care for many, many years, with some of her noteworthy time working in the National HIV Nursing Association. And by the way, Sarah, she's got your dream job because she is currently working as an associate professor at the University of Nottingham really yeah so maybe maybe you need to start petitioning dr michelle croston about getting this honorary doctorate i mean i can do an intern internship that's what they call it isn't it could do that for a bit perfect but the reason i'm thanking them is because they did a review of our podcast and so it was an episode nine that's come out recently um, and it was a lovely lovely review so yeah we just wanted to thank them massively for taking the time for giving us a review and a shout out and Obviously, we'll put the link below, as we always do, so you can go and find the HIV Matters podcast because it is really, really good. So essentially, it's a podcast exploring the current issues that people living with HIV face, and they provide content and discussions around HIV care in the UK, Europe and America. And you can also follow them on Instagram, and we will tag them in our post so you can see it. So thank you. Oh, I hope we can link up with her. Very knowledgeable. So knowledgeable. I know, but I feel, would I feel like a bit of a big buffoon? Sarah, we've just spent the opening portion of our podcast talking about toast. I think we could learn quite a lot from her. (laughs) On professionalism, I feel we could. Yes. (laughs) That's a good point. Starting with some nice stuff. And then obviously when we opened this episode, you had said what a busy week we've had. And there's a specific reason for this, isn't there? There is. Yes. So, oh, we're having quite the time of it. Some of you that follow our TVPS account. So TVPS is the charity, the HIV support charity that Sarah and I work for. And we both have done for many, many years. So that is our day jobs. That's what we do. And obviously we have social media accounts. And some of you might have seen that on our account this week, we were posting about how Slough has the highest rate of new diagnosis in the whole of the Southeast. And so what Slough Council thought they would do is basically put our property in jeopardy. What a treat. Yeah. So we should point out that Slough Council um, is in a huge amount of debt and on the brink of bankruptcy. Yeah. Uh, they are looking to sell all of their assets to plug that gap. And one of those assets is the premises that we're based in. We do pay rent for the premises um, and we look after it very well, but it is on the list to be disposed of. And if we don't have premises, can't operate. And at a time when the people of Slough need us the most. We need to tackle this new diagnosis rate. We need to tackle the number of people who are diagnosed so late that they're ending up in intensive care. And we're having to put some of that on the back burner to fight for our premises. But the reason we're actually recording so late in the week is because our whole week has been taken up doing everything we can towards trying to fight this decision, essentially. So yeah, it's all a bit stressful. It's all a bit stressful. If anyone's got any good ideas or any contacts, you know, about how to help us keep our property, let us know. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Or anybody wants to offer their support. I know this is a worldwide podcast. Definitely wouldn't want anyone to identify themselves if they wanted to remain anonymous. But I think it's always good to gather evidence of why HIV services are so crucial to those diagnosed with HIV and how they help reduce isolation and build support networks. Because I think that sometimes I feel that is missed by, well, definitely missed in this case, by the people within the council who are disposing of all the assets they're not going to know the frontline stories so we will gather lots of them because we've got lots and lots of service users but if anyone wants to help support us just get in touch and like sarah said it it's awful i was going to call it daylight robbery i mean it's not daylight robbery we don't own the property but we do pay rent as sarah said but i think what we've discussed quite a lot is how a lot of people don't want to be open about their hiv diagnosis why should they be so As we've discussed before, Sarah, it's almost like robbing people who already don't have a voice. We have people that aren't going to be able to speak up in the community or to the newspaper because they don't want to waive their anonymity. We're sort of easy pickings, really, aren't we? We are. I think it's an easy target, if I'm honest, because as service users won't be as vocal as other groups. But as we've seen before, it's always the most vulnerable groups that are hit the hardest by cuts like this. And it's so wrong. It's really wrong. But, you know. Both of us are quite good at going into battle. So yeah, that's a bit more rubbishy news that we have because we actually cannot believe that things like this are still happening in this day and age, especially when we're supposed to be getting to 2030, zero transmissions by 2030. How on earth is that going to happen if you are removing HIV services in the most vital areas where you need support? How? I know, it's not going to happen. Not going to happen in Slough. Anyway... Oh, we might do the next podcast and we'd be like chained to our building. Oh, let's do that. Oh, let's not. Oh, okay. Maybe we can get up on the roof. Oh, crikey. That seems a bit... It's a bit extreme. Isn't it? I mean, I just sit in the garden. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just a seated protest for us. (laughs) Yeah. I'm so excited. We're starting a summer miniseries. That's how I know it's summer, Sarah. There's a miniseries. Yeah, I mean, it's the end of summer, so we've been a bit delayed, haven't we, because there's been so much going on. But it is a mini-series, you're right there. Yeah, it's a summer month and it is a mini-series nonetheless. Yes, it's all about pornography. I was going to say my (laughs) favourite. Well, I know it's a subject close to your heart. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, we've had lots of discussions about setting up that round. We've never had a discussion about setting up pornography. An OnlyFans page, sorry, I didn't get my sentence. But that wasn't to like get undressed or anything. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. I misunderstood. Because maybe now we might have to just to try and like keep a roof. Or to raise the, the funds to buy a house. Yeah. If I have to, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to use giant chocolate buttons strategically placed. Okay. So are we talking about if you have to do porn or if you have to do like. I have to do an OnlyFans page. I'm still after that Cadbury's ad. So, uh, yeah, they'll be coming on that journey with me. I mean, I'm not sure how much Cadbury's are going to want to come on the journey now we're doing an episode about pornography, but I like I like that you're still trying. Yeah, and buttons, they're so versatile. They can be used for so many different things. What else do you use them for? I'd rather not discuss it on here. <laughs> I'm God, I want to know. It really ain't last long enough in my house to do anything else. Right. Okay, porn. Let's go. Okay. So we, yes, we're looking at pornography and HIV. Um, and as I've said, I know you love a good porn film. Me, not so much. A porn film. I think you can just call it a porno. 
Oh, do you? I'm doing. I don't even know the te- terminology. Oh, look, she's so coy. I, I wouldn't possibly know what you call one of those. Is it? So, what, is it called a porno? I don't know. I just don't know if I'd call it a porn film. I'd say, are you watching porn? I wouldn't say, are you oh. watching, is that? Please say that's what you say to your kids. If you're going to watch a porn film, make sure you know that. I don't know what you'd you're say covered to them. In condoms. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, I think you can call it whatever you like. It's just sorry, I shouldn't mock you. It's just I don't think I've ever heard it called a porn film. Well, that just shows my lack of knowledge in this area. Luckily, we've got you to guide us. Of course, of course. Okay, right. So I'm going to try and stop saying okay. Do you know what I've noticed in podcasts? I say it all the time. It's just it's just not essential to the conversation, is it? We like an okay. We like a so. One of them. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It just drives me mad. This week, we are looking at HIV and the pornography industry in America. So we know an HIV diagnosis can be devastating and uh, it's certainly life changing. We always get lots of questions from newly diagnosed people about returning to work. Do they have to disclose, et cetera, et cetera. But imagine if you contracted HIV at work, because that is what was happening in the porn industry in the 80s and 90s. I was going to say an occupational hazard. Yeah, it was. And this is why it's so interesting, because it must have had a huge impact. It did. And we are going to look into all of that. Now, we are focusing on America because did we not do we not have a porn industry in the UK? We must do. But a lot of people travel to America. Is it just a lot bigger, better paid and everything over there, isn't it? I, don't, I, I, I have to say, I don't know. But. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, a lot of the kind of studios and the production companies are based in California. Yeah. You know near Hollywood. I suppose it makes sense, doesn't it, really? There's another idea. If we need to raise funds to buy the house, should we set up a porn production company? I, do you know, I don't think we'd make a lot of money. Okay, well, shelve that idea. So let's get back on track, shall we? 80s and 90s, condoms not used in porn films. I'm just going to call them porn films. It's just all I know. You can just say porn. Oh, well, but in films in particular, because that's what we're looking at. The actors and actresses performing in these films are, of course, at risk of contracting HIV. So this miniseries is looking at some of the actors and the actresses affected, what actually happened and what became known as the great porn scandal. I'm in. Great. Well, this week is all about, it's kind of setting the scene. We're looking at a report written by the um, CDC, the Centres for Disease Control and Prevention. I wonder why they don't include the P. Surely it should be CDCP. That's more catchy, isn't it? Well, we've learned before that there are some odd acronyms in America. Yeah. Uh, So they uh, compiled a report looking at cases in 2014. So what we normally do when we do a mini series is we start at the beginning and then work our way through the years this mini series we're kind of going backwards yeah so we're looking at what's happening in 2014 um and then we're going back to what was happening in the 80s and 90s to see if anything's changed oh <laughs> but by by your tone i feel maybe it has not i'd say that's probably a fair assumption we're going to use the cdc report because it is a good illustration of the complexities of data mapping possible transmission routes right and I suppose they're not using the report as an excuse for how lax the industry was. We'll see this as we go through this episode. But I think it does highlight the challenges public health faced in containing transmission. Right. I don't think there was a way they could contain transmission. Now, this is statistical data, Jess. We'll go slowly because it's not your forte. I get it's that. Not. It's not. And I have also drawn a little illustration for you just to help 
evidence it, which I can show you if it all gets too much. Because when I first read through the report, I was like, this is just so confusing. So I had to write it all down. This person transmitted to this person and this came back to this. So the report starts by saying that they're looking at HIV and other STIs that have been documented among adult film performers. And in recognition of the fact that HIV tests do not detect HIV very early after infection. So if you're having unprotected sex as part of your day job every day with different people, when does the window period start and stop? How long do you need to abstain between pieces of work? And if you're not working, you're not being paid. So there's costs associated with delaying filming. That really is the challenge that industry faced. And was there even a requirement to be tested? I wonder when that came in. Yeah. So there were eventually, there was a requirement to test. But if you're testing on day one, and then the result comes back that day, and you're negative, and then you're working on days two on one production, on day three on another production, how often do you need to test? I mean, you could be testing every day. So the report, and I can't believe this as well, because we're talking about 2014. It's the first well-documented work-related HIV transmission report among male adult film performers. So we're way after the 80s and 90s. And this is the first report looking at the challenges that industry faces. And it's essentially a case study of what happened. So they've identified a performer who tested negative via HIV test within the preceding 14 days. Okay. You were doing porn, porn films. If you were starring in a production or had any part in a, in a production that was being filmed, you did have to test for HIV in the 14 days or up to 14 days prior to your performance. Yeah. So this performer had done that. He was unaware of his recent HIV infection. They, although he tested, the test hadn't picked up that he was HIV positive because he was so newly diagnosed. Of course, yeah. he's Like you're saying, he's within the window period and very newly so. Yes. Uh, so he went on to infect another performer and a non-work-related partner. And then they go on to say that viruses in all four infections, so four, they're talking about the person that infected this performer, the performer himself, the other performer that he infected, and the non-work-related partner. Those are the four. And what they realised when they analysed the blood samples is that these HIV infections are genetically related. So you've got a transmission cluster, as they call it. And so they say, right, we have to act on this. We need to map out transmission routes so we can let everyone know who's been in touch with these four that they need to get tested to. Okay, that's where we're at. So as I said, California Department of Public Health in 2014 were notified about patient A a male adult film industry performer who was 25 years old. He'd had a negative HIV test, developed symptoms, was retested and then tested positive. This was in a within a 22-day time frame. Okay. So the test they've got is pretty good. It's picking things up quickly, but there's no test in the world, I don't think, at that time that would pick up instant transmission. Now, within that 22-day time frame, Patient A, as he's known, worked with two different film production companies and had condomless sex with 12 different male performers. Okay. Now, I'm telling you this to evidence the scale of these sort of, I was going to say situations, that's not, not the right wording at all. But these are performers who are working constantly with different film production companies. Well, I always thought that if you were um, producing a film, it, you know, it took months. 
Oh, I don't think they're getting like a team of script writers on there and doing like read throughs. I don't, I don't like a round table. I don't think that's happening, Sarah. I think, I think they're quite literally knocking it out in a day. Yeah, no, that's exactly what they're doing. So you're right. Yes, yeah, so I was thinking that. I said, well, films can take oh, good year, but no, no, no. I think the most of, amount of time is spent trying to get the angle or several different angles of people just having sex. They call I'm it like, the pop shot, don't they? Oh, do they? You like my porn knowledge? It's because I've watched so many documentaries on it. Fascinated by it. Yeah, I mean, now I'm thinking you might actually be a part of it. Are you uh, topping up your income? By... Oh, I knew it. I'm a fluffer. What's a what's a fluffer? <laughs> so a fluffer is historically it was the person that like gets you ready. So a fluffer is somebody who would work with like a male performer to help them get their erection ready. And then send them off on sound no. not a fluffer. But I love that you didn't know that. Seriously? Up after this, a fluffer, yeah. Oh, just that how do they do it then? Oh, I suppose because when you're ready to shoot the scene, you need everything to be. So sometimes it can be difficult, can't it? It's a lot of pressure for someone with a penis to constantly be getting an erection just on, you know, go on, go on, off you go. Even though it's like 20 people having a good old stare, you know, sometimes you need a bit of a hand. Or do they do the same for the woman? No, because we're women and no one gives a shit, do they? They just go, here you go, probably have a bucket of lube. That's all you'll get. Because as we've learned in life, Sarah, no one cares because we're women. Oh, no. So no one's kind of, I was going to say, riven up the woman. That's not good terminology at all, is it? You know, there's an absolutely enormous disparity. And to be honest, I don't know if it's still the case, but historically it's always been the way that women were paid so badly and men were paid so much more in porn and I suppose because of that because it was quite a talent if you could get an erection on command if you can get the pop shot on command rather than you know lose it and not be able to do it whereas as a woman I suppose they saw it as well it's just interchangeable and I think that that's going to be evident through our little mini series is the the difference in the way men and women were treated is it was shocking for me. I don't know if it's different now. I really hope it is. Oh, don't be shocked, right? Because I, I don't even care that I'm interrupting this podcast to tell you this, Sarah. But don't be shocked because let's remember that there was a report that came out in the last two weeks. Scientists have never tested actual blood out on sanitary products. So they've only ever used like water and saline solution. So actually everything we think we know about how absorbent things are is not the case whatsoever. Oh, well, this is demoralising. I know. Anyway, sorry. It's it's just, it's more that when women have been going to the doctor and saying, I've got a massively heavy period, so I'm using like a, like a super tampon or like I'm going through X amount of pads, that actually really underestimates how it's even heavier than they thought because they're basing that obviously on what they know from the saline solution being absorbent, whereas things that they don't, our sanitary products don't absorb as much blood as it can absorb saline solution. Does that make sense? So actually yeah, yeah. a ton of women going to the doctor going, got a really heavy period and the doctor saying, well, it doesn't sound that bad. And it's actually way worse. Right. Okay. I'll stop ranting. We can move on now. Back to patient A. Yeah. Uh, so we said 22 day time frame before we got derailed by all this new knowledge from Jess. Uh, <laughs> two, two different film companies, 12 different male performing partners, condomless sex, obviously. In addition, patient A could supply details for five male non-work-related sexual partners that he'd been seeing in that 22-day period. So there's 17 people in total that need to be traced. 
lots of scientific testing, uh, and it revealed that a non-work-related partner had likely infected patient A. Good work. They've already found out how he got HIV. Patient A then goes on to infect the co-worker during the second film production and a non-work-related partner. So all of that's quite easy to map out. So during the first production, it was a one-day film shoot. So you're right, they ain't spend long on this, do they? It was before his symptoms began and nine days after his negative test. So to all intents and purposes, he's like, I'm HIV negative. He has condomless, insertive and receptive anal sex with two HIV negative performers and condomless, receptive and insertive oral sex with four HIV infected performers. Okay, so that is quite a number of people. So now the map's getting bigger, isn't it? Because we need to account for all of these people. Mm. Patient A told the public health people that the production company informed him before the film shoot that the people that he was going to be doing oral sex with were HIV infected with undetectable viral aids. So in that respect, the production company are doing their job well. He then moves on to a second production, a three-day film shoot. Must have been a bigger, juicier story. That began the day after patient A's symptoms started and 11 days after his test result. He had condomless receptive and insertive oral sex and condomless insertive anal sex with three negative people and condomless receptive and insertive oral sex with three more. All of those people were HIV negative. Now, why do we need to know all of this and go into it in such detail? It's because public health team needed to get hold of all the people involved so they could test them for HIV to try and prevent transmission. Patient A's sexual contacts and the performers that he'd worked with lived in seven different US states. So people travel around a lot for this type of industry. Patient A had also been diagnosed with gonorrhea. So even those that already knew they were HIV positive needed to be advised to test for gonorrhea. So all of a sudden, the task is becoming much bigger. You can't discount the people who are already HIV positive because they need to know that they could have gonorrhea as well. And there was another challenge. Production company one could provide evidence of HIV testing. That's how we know patient A had already tested. Production company two couldn't provide evidence or chose not to. And this is where the kind of industry falls apart a bit. And it's the second film where transmission took place to what's now known as patient B. Right. And that was a three-day shoot. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They also uncovered other STIs as they are trying to work their way through this mapping process. They discovered that somebody had syphilis, two other people had chlamydia. I mean, can you imagine trying to map all of this out? Because you've now got to work backwards from the person who's got chlamydia, for example. Okay, who were they actually in contact with? And then who were those people in contact with? And it just becomes a huge process because of the amount of people involved. Exactly. And I'm imagining you can't say to people, just stop working you know, to to halt that transmission. So you have to do this all really fast. Yeah. And I think that was one of the kind of challenges. And you're working across a a vast area um, of, uh, well, presumably of of America. I don't know if people from other countries were involved as well. Just trying to trace those people is going to be really difficult. And I think we're not trying to vilify patient A here. We're not doing some sort of patient zero mission, are we? Because patient A had done exactly what was required of him. He had tested for HIV 14 days prior to filming and his test was negative. And he was using a test that was industry standard, but couldn't pick up very recent infections. And as we've already shown or pointed out, not every production company implemented this rule about testing for HIV before you perform. So he's actually been quite conscientious in doing the test 
because for the second production company, I mean, they're not giving anything away. So we'll assume that uh, they didn't have that requirement to test anyway. So that's what we're dealing with. If you look at patient B, he was diagnosed 18 days after filming on that film set with patient A. He'd been negative for HIV three days prior to filming. So they knew patient A was a common link. He worked on both productions. But patient B is also a performer in the porn industry. So he's going on to do more jobs with other people. He's also having non-work related sexual contact. He could name at least one person that he had had sex with during that time frame. So the, the map gets bigger and bigger and bigger. It must be huge. Anyway, as the report goes on, it becomes more complicated because they numbered all the contacts that they were looking at. So that's quite easy. You know, patient A was one, et cetera, et cetera. Then they started giving different people letters. And I was just like, what are you doing? Yeah, well, just stick with one, like yes. way of coding. Let's not complicate it. There were five non-work related partners for patient A during the one month before as well as after symptoms started. So based on dates of sexual contact, Contacts 13 to 15 were considered at risk for infection and therefore considered potential spread partners. Contacts 16 and 17 were considered potential sources of patients' HIV infection. So in essence, out of the five that he slept with, two were HIV positive, three were negative, but potentially positive and passing the virus on. This is quite complicated. So my thinking is that the two HIV positive men that he had sex with should be classed as spread partners as they call it. That's their terminology. It's not, I would, I've never heard of that in the others. I don't like derogatory, isn't it? Because one of them could have passed it on to him. Yeah. So he's got two people that they think he could have contracted from and three people that he could have passed it on to. This is one performer in the industry and this is happening across all productions. That's the thing to think about, isn't it? This is one incident imagine how many more there must be like this. Yes. And it goes on. They've identified patient C. Five days after sexual contact with patient A, tests negative, but has chlamydia and latent syphilis. 15 days later, he develops symptoms of HIV. And one day after that, he's diagnosed. So now we've got someone who doesn't even work in the industry who has contracted HIV. And then we have patient D. So patient A had non-work related sexual contact with him as well during this time. Uh, At the time, patient A had tested, so he thought he was negative. He wasn't. I mean, the HIV test is just not fit for purpose, is it? So 47 days after his last sexual contact with patient A, he received a diagnosis of chlamydia and HIV infection. Patient D then identifies another potential spread partner. So he's saying, you know, might not have been patient A, I've got this from, might have got this from patient E, which they then had to kind of look into. So it just, honestly, it just blows my mind. So what what happened? What did they do? All they could do was give recommendations as to how this situation can move forward. So firstly, let's address, because there'll be very clever, cloggy people out there who are like, yeah, there's a window period. You always bang on about a window period of three months for HIV. And we do. The tests, HIV tests used for performers are very sensitive. Obviously not that sensitive or we wouldn't have any of this. So they can pick up HIV more quickly than the tests that we use, for example. But nothing, nothing can be 100% accurate from the day of transmission. So the test, I mean, it's highly sensitive, obviously, and it's capable of detecting HIV 10 to 15 days after infection. So I guess they would have classed that as their 
window period. But then what patient A did was test 14 days before the first filming and then go on to the second filming. And maybe it was he didn't need to test for that because he's like, no, 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 I tested two weeks ago. Because the CDC, not surprisingly, have comments to make within their report about the adult film industry. So they said, since the 1990s, many adult film production companies have required performers to participate in HIV testing. In 2004, work-related HIV transmission between heterosexual adult film performers occurred despite the existence of one such testing program. So this isn't the first instance that this has happened. It's, you know, looking back historically, it just keeps happening, but nothing's changing. So they go on to say many adult film production companies continue to rely on HIV testing as the primary method to prevent transmission. And the way they do that is that the performers obtain an HIV test through a commercial laboratory. Their test results are maintained in a database by a third party. Production companies check the database to ensure that performers have had a recent negative test before filming. To be honest, that's the crux of the matter here, isn't it? Recent doesn't necessarily mean definitive. Yeah, recent doesn't mean accurate, does it? No, so it's just, it's not, the the process that they're using is not really fit for purpose. They go on to point out that some production companies specialise in producing bareback films where no condoms are used for anal sex among male performers and that that needs to change. And then they talk about the timescales for patient A. He'd done a test prior to filming, done everything by the book, really. His symptoms appeared 10 days after that test. He's just doing his job. He's having sex with patient B as he's being paid to do and directed to do by the production company. So they go on to look at, well, they kind of skirt around the issue. But I was thinking, well, surely the production company is at fault here then. There's some responsibility has to lie with the company that are making these films. Surely they have a duty of care to their sort of employees, even if they're like contractors, I suppose, you'd still have a duty of care, wouldn't you? Yeah, and they do. So they have to have in place work practice controls and PPE to mitigate contact with blood and other infectious materials, semen. doesn't say in the report from the CDC whether performers are expected to undertake tests for other STIs. But in relation to HIV, like I said, they have this database. I mean, it's good in theory, but the timings, no, 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 no. The idea is great, but it just doesn't work in practice. Now, in 2012, voters in Los Angeles County passed a local law, and remember a lot of the films are filmed in California, requiring that adult film performers wear condoms during sex and requiring adult film production companies to obtain a film permit. So up until then, they hadn't needed any kind of verification. And that permit was to be issued by the Los Angeles Department of Public Health. So there were requirements around the permit. So it included a completion of a bloodborne pathogen training course by adult film directors um, and a submission of an exposure control plan by the producers. Oh, so they are trying to tighten that up on how these films kind of operate and how they support their performers. But it was only- you're always going to have people that want to go around the rules, aren't you? I bet you there's always going to be people out there paying more for bareback films and all sorts, you know? Yeah, and this is only in Los Angeles. It's a local law. So production companies can shoot down the road to San Francisco and not have to re- fulfil any permit requirements at all, which is probably what they all did. Anyway, they went on to uh, work with the California Safety and Health Standards Board and they proposed workplace standards to prevent STIs in the adult film industry, which included correct condom use, HIV and STI testing at the employer's expense. And that's kind of key because they weren't paying for these tests. The performers are having to. They also 
uh, said there was a requirement for Hep A and HPV vaccines. Uh, Hep B was already an existing requirement. Production companies not really keen on any of these guidelines at all. So they pointed out the challenges of coordinating this over a wide geographical area. So they said, look, we work all over the world. We're often recruiting workers from different states or countries, and therefore we need substantial resources to meet these standards. Pointing the finger really at public health and the health and safety board. So if you want this to happen, you're going to have to pay us to do it. That's what it sounds like. I mean, they didn't put that in the report. That's my interpretation. <laughs> wrong. Just adding it in there for them. But I would uh, just point out that production companies make a huge amount of money from the films that they produce. Uh, and very little of that money seems to be going towards the welfare of their performers. Uh, the other thing they touch on in the report is prep, which you would have thought everybody would have been on. And that the industry itself would be promoting prep. It seems like the kind of best way forward but at the time it was rare rare for performers to be taking prep let's say i hope that's changed now but they do also say that although prep would protect against hiv it doesn't protect against other stis and actually how would you evidence compliance but that's it again it's how how would you do that how would you have that guarantee so the report really summarises that periodic HIV and STI testing is essential, but it shouldn't be relied on as the sole method of prevention. PrEP should be used along with condoms. And that the adult film industry should consider the implementation of combination HIV pre- prevention strategies, including testing, treatment, PrEP, and also behavioural changes, consistent and correct use of condoms. It's a good move forward, right? Very, very sensible. What we're going to do next week is we are going to kind of look at the history of all of this. So we'll go back to the beginning now. Now that we know that in 2014, that was the stance that everybody kind of took. And we've kind of shown how prolific HIV infection could be amongst performers. Remember, they're just doing their job and being directed to by production companies. We're going to go right back to the 80s when there was the HIV pandemic and look at how that affected the porn industry. So what we looked at today, is that what was called the porn scandal? No, the porn scandal was happening way before that. Oh, so that's something else we're going to look at. Yes. We'll look at some of the performers in more detail and we'll look at some of the people that worked within the industry. The reason for kind of starting here at this point is to show how complex this situation is and the number of people that are involved day to day that are at risk of HIV transmission. Even if you take out the five non-work related partners that patient A slept with, he still was having unprotected sex with one, two, three, four, five people in in as many days. And that's what he's paid to do. That's his job. I just feel sorry for these performers, you know, because yes, they're being paid to do this. Yes, they choose to do this. But at the end of the day, it's the production companies that kind of have the control, isn't it? Yeah, and should be implementing safety measures and, and, and ensuring their workers are as safe as possible. Yeah. And although there's a database that the production companies can check, I'm not clear whether other performers could check that or whether they have to go on the say-so of the production company. And then that's just trusting someone's word, whereas surely if we're all open and honest, we should all be able to get on it if we're all in the industry. Yeah. That's how I would feel if I was working in it. Like, yeah, and I'm not sure. It's not clear from the report whether that was the case. But patient A is just doing exactly what's expected of him. He's testing when he was asked to test. The test hasn't picked up that he is already infected with HIV because it doesn't have the capability to do that. Mm. And then off he goes to work. 
when you think about it, it's just crackers, isn't it? This was even allowed to happen. And this is in 2014. I think, oh, I'm on a bit of a rant now. We've had the 80s with the pandemic, which hit America hard. We've got the 90s where we're still getting people being diagnosed, but we at least know far more about transmission routes. Mm-hmm. And this report and this instance with patient A happened in 2014. That is really shocking, I have to say, because I, I suppose all throughout this, in my mind, it's been like, oh, no, no, it was earlier than I think. And actually, no, 2014, that's craziness. Ooh, well, I'm very excited to... Um, do we know how many episodes we've got of this mini-series or not? There's another four. So we're going to look at the history and we're going to focus also on two male performers and two female performers. Okay, fantastic. Kind of look at their kind of personal journeys and how they were affected by HIV I have to say I have I found it all quite sad I put on the last week's episode um around the UK children in the blurb in the synopsis under the episode I'd actually said sadly this is no less shocking than all the other ones I feel like that should be the strap line for everything (laughs) this is no less shocking or sad and these awful things continue to happen and we keep learning about them it's all terrible (laughs) <laughs> we're just shocked in every episode in our day-to-day work that we are paid to do then we're shocked by the council trying to take our house away it's just shock all round isn't it, it can't be good for us Jess all this stress it's definitely not shock and sadness as you say all round but yes I hope our council are taking notes Sarah bet they're not the less I have to say on that matter the better Jess <laughs> anyway that's it just we finished oh almost bilingual Thanks for listening to the HIV podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please like, rate and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can now also follow us on Instagram and TikTok at the HIV podcast for behind the scenes insights and video. The HIV podcast is produced by Thames Valley Positive Support. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm-hmm. 